The Future of Smart, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olga Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the award-winning book, The Future of Smart, and your host. Today's episode was made possible with support from our Post-Secondary Access and Attainment Impact Group. This is a coalition of funders committed to increasing the number of young people who start and complete post-secondary education or training. They have a particular focus on more historically underserved populations. Our guest today knows from her own experience that getting into college is only the first step for many students like her, who are the first in their families to navigate America's complex higher education system. Once they arrive on campus, the experience of being a student in environments that aren't set up to be responsive to diverse student needs can be daunting and lonely. So Alex Bernadotte set out to do something about that by founding Beyond 12, a tech-enabled nonprofit that helps institutions provide students with the academic, social, and emotional support they need to succeed in higher education. EdTech is huge right now. By some estimates, startups and companies raised upwards of $2.2 billion in 2020, a conservative estimate by the EdTech Evidence Exchange in 2021 was that districts, states, and the federal government might be spending an additional 26 to $41 billion a year on educational technologies. My own sons use at least six platforms each in school, and watching them work, I'm struck that the applications seem to do what a lot of EdTech does, change what the experience of school looks like without fundamentally changing the experience of school. Alex and her team were interested in being more human-centered in their application of technology. During their design work, they heard from young people about three different kinds of support that they found helpful to receive from coaches and advisors, navigational, transactional, and inspirational. With those distinctions in mind, Beyond 12 has automated what can be automated while making time and space to cultivate trust and authentic relationships. The students Beyond 12 serves are first-generation college students, but as Alex reminds us, the label itself suggests that students who are the first in their families to attend college are a monolith. Beyond 12's app provides personalized navigational and transactional support to students, like sending information about financial aid and resources or reminding them about course registration. The time and the human capacity that's freed up by this automation are directed towards building relationships with mentors who have navigated the path that each of these students will encounter. Within these relationships, each young person is reminded that they belong in the world of higher education, that they, their unique family story and their background are resources to be accessed as they make choices about the lives that they want to live. 
Each student that graduates is invited to become part of the sustainable ecosystem of support that Beyond 12 is seeking to bring alive, both within its own network and within the institutions that it partners with. At a moment when we're all craving more connection, community, and sense of belonging, a human-centered lens on addressing systemic challenges will be critical. This is especially true as technology plays a greater and greater role in our educational institutions. Join me for my conversation with Alex about Beyond 12, the idea of tax-exempt businesses, and her own journey as a social entrepreneur. Welcome, Alex. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Olka. It's great to be here. So I want to start with you. Um, you know, our personal stories, our journeys always inform uh, the work that we're doing today. So tell us a little bit about yourself and mo- what motivates you in the work that you're doing today with Beyond 12. I am happy to. My story actually begins in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, where I was born. Um, I was born in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. My parents left me in the care of my beloved late grandmother, Mommy Claire, left me in her care to come to the United States, like many immigrants, in search of better opportunities for themselves and for me, their firstborn. And I remember really clearly that that sacrifice was always central to the story. So my grandmother would say, your parents have made this tremendous sacrifice on your behalf. So you don't have the luxury to be bad. You have to do well. You have to do well in school and you have to listen, you know. So it was this thing that um, was central to who we were as a family because I had to repay that sacrifice. And the way that I repaid that sacrifice is that I had to do well. So this theme continued to govern my life when I was reunited with my parents in inner city Boston when I was about seven years old. But at that time, honoring their sacrifice meant that I had to go to college. Um, Since neither of my parents had been to college, college was this abstract thing we talked about. We didn't really know what it took to get there, but we knew that I had to go. Until one day, my mom overheard a group of doctors talking about where they were sending their kids to college. And she came running home that day and said, okay, you have to go to this thing called an Ivy League, and you have to go to this place called Dartmouth. Um, And that's how the dream of a specific college was born. It was through that overheard conversation in the emergency room of Kearney Hospital in Dorchester, Massachusetts, where my mom worked as a phlebotomist. So at that point, the dream had a name, it had a destination, it was the Ivy League, and I worked really hard to make sure that that dream happened. And as you can imagine, when we started getting the acceptance letters from all of these institutions, we were so thrilled and we treated the moment almost as if we had won the lottery. And when the one from Dartmouth came, we realized it was pronounced Dartmouth by that point and not Dartmouth, Um, we were, I mean, overjoyed and assumed that the most difficult part of the journey was behind us. So I did coincidentally land at that Dartmouth place and discovered very early on that getting in was actually only the first step. And immediately realized that uh, the journey ahead would likely be even more difficult I had a very difficult transition from high school to college. I struggled academically, socially, financially, even though on paper, I should have been a student that that did well. But that struggle, as difficult as it was for me and our family, planted the seed for the work that I do today. 
So I was able to turn things around with the support of my family, but the help of mentors and two mentors on campus specifically, two Black women. One was my dean of students, Sylvia Langford, and the other one was Deborah King, who was my sociology professor and advisor, who looked at me and said, not on my watch. And they proceeded to pour all of their resources and support into me to ensure that I succeeded and I graduated. So the story has a happy ending. I was Mm -hmm. able to turn things around. I graduated from Dartmouth. I became the first person in our family to earn a college degree. And I eventually landed at Stanford for my master's. But that's my story. And that's why I am so committed to doing the work that I do today to ensure that other students with backgrounds and stories similar to mine don't struggle as I had. And as I did. And that leads directly to your work as a social entrepreneur. Uh, You're the founder and the CEO of Beyond 12. Tell us a little bit about Beyond 12, um, what you and your team do um, every day and the students that you're working with. Absolutely. So we close the economic divide by helping students from um, historically underserved backgrounds earn college degrees. That we like to say we help them translate those degrees into meaningful employment and choice-filled lives because we believe that choice is the ultimate privilege. And we do that through a digital coaching platform that combines three elements. One is coaches who work with students virtually when they first transition to college. The second is a mobile app called MyCoach, where we've downloaded the academic and the financial aid calendars of the colleges and universities that students are attending. And we feed them this information in the form of a video-based to-do list that helps translate essential college tasks into bite-sized actionable steps. And the third piece of the platform is a back-end analytics engine that's powered by AI that allows us to predict which students need help and when and prescribe the right type of support. So for us, we call it high-tech, high-touch. It's a combination of this technology and a service that we believe allows us to impact not just the students with whom we may be working directly, but the institutions in our student stories. So the high schools from which they graduated, the after-school programs that provided them with additional support, as well as the colleges and universities in which they're enrolled. So give me an example, and for those who are listening, if I were a student in the program, what would that look like? So let's say the student attends a community college, for instance. And so their point of entry would be the summer right before they are entering college or the fall or the spring as they are first entering. Um, And so what that uh, relationship looks like in the beginning is that they would get a prompt for from their institution, either an email invitation, um, a presentation at orientation, but somehow they would understand that Beyond 12 is being offered to them as a resource to help them on their journey. And so that introduction would begin through the email where they would be um, presented with a couple of different options. One would be to connect with a coach, so one of our human coaches. And the second would be an invitation to download our mobile app that has been customized for their institution. And so it includes all of the academic, the financial aid deadlines in general for their institution. But if their institution has decided to customize it by cohort, it would be further customized depending on their course of study, right? And what and what their interests were. So they would start by downloading MyCoach, you know, creating an account, and that would then prompt um 
lots of messaging from us. And so they would receive regular push notifications, reminding them of the activities, deadlines, and behaviors that lead to success, as well as an introduction to a coach. And that coach will be somebody like them who's walked in their shoes, um, most often who has attended either their institution or a similar institution. So their coach is able to provide them with not just general information about navigating college, but very context-specific guidance about how to navigate a particular institution. And together, so the technology allows them to um, handle the navigational and the transa transactional aspects of college, and their coach really will focus on the mo more inspirational. Their coach would focus on the more inspirational parts of college, and together these two pieces provide holistic support that allows students to more successfully navigate their college journey. I'm listening to you, and you know, as listeners of this podcast know, one of the frames is there's a way that we can use technology or other tools to make our existing system slightly better, right? And work slightly better. And there are other ways to do things that are about making the work that we do more human centered, kind of really enabling and allowing for um, authentic connection, the building and sustaining of healthy relationships. And it really does sound like you and your team have been attending to the latter. And what have you learned about how technology can be used to facilitate and strengthen relationships? Such a good question and such a powerful question. And we ask ourselves that question every day, quite frankly. So one of the things that we've learned is that technology that is built for and not with your end user is never going to be as powerful as technology that is built with your users and in our case, our students, not just at the center, but co-created and co-designed with our students. So that's the first lesson. From the beginning, we've had a longstanding relationship with human-centered design firm IDEO. And we have been able to bring students at the table to say, help us create this, help us design this. What kind of support do you need? What kind of su support would be helpful? When would that support be most helpful? And so we've built all of our products with our students. And one of the important lessons that they taught us, particularly about coaching and advising, is that they receive three different kinds of support from an advisor or coach. There's the navigational, there's the transactional, and there's the inspirational. And what we learned is you can automate the navigational and the transactional. You can send push notifications and nudges, and you can use a digital platform to help them address some of those challenges or to provide them with that kind of support. But when it comes to the inspirational, when it comes to the big picture questions, am I college material? Do I belong here? I'm not fitting in and I just want to go home or I don't actually have a place, I'm having a problem with, you know, X, Y, and Z, the human aspects of it, that you can't really use technology to replace that, that that kind of support is best provided through a human relationship. And so in that case, technology then makes the human interaction more efficient. And so what we can do for our coaches is we can help them focus on the unique aspects of coaching that are 
human, the inspirational, and we can use technology to offset all of those things that are not uniquely human, right? The Mm -hmm. navigational, the ad drop deadline. Let me remind you of when the ad drop deadline is. Let me remind you of when your FAFSA deadline is in financial aid. Let me remind you that you have to complete that every year. It wasn't just a one-time thing, you know, to get into college, that this is something you have to do every year. So that kind of information you can automate, but that authentic, inspirational, um, can I do this? I'm having doubts that that has to be a human relationship. And so we're using technology to facilitate that, to make that stronger, uh, but not to replace it. And taking the burden right off of coaches for having to do some of the transactional and the navigational. And I can't help but make the connection for those listeners who work in K-12 around what's the role of technology, even in K-12 classrooms, right? What is it that educators and mentors and advisors are equipped to do versus how could technology be used? So I want to take us in a slightly different direction. And this was a super helpful kind of framing to understand what Beyond 12 does. But when we first met, We talked about how um, leaders of color in the education space often have two versions of how we talk about our work. One is a version that the powers that be want to hear. Often it's for funders, it's for investors. And the other is a version that better reflects our understanding of the complexities of the human beings we work with and the lives that they do lead and want to lead. So what have you learned from the first generation students you work with about what they really want for themselves and their lives? And what, if anything, is at odds with some of the conversations in the field about first gen students and about what, you know, some of the thought leaders and funders and policymakers think that they may want or need? Another wonderful, powerful question. Um, But the first way that I would answer that is that our field often speaks about first-generation students as if they are a monolithic group. First-generation, low-income, historically underserved. Those are the words that we use. And we often approach it with a deficit-based frame. Um, What I know about myself as a first-generation student and what we hear from all of our students is that we are not a monolith. A first-generation student who grew up in inner-city Boston, whose parents are from Port-au-Prince, Haiti, is so different from a first-generation student who grew up in the Mississippi Delta or the flatlands of South Carolina. So that's one big thing, that our students are rich in their diversity, diversity of experiences, diversity of expectations, thoughts, their attitudinal and behavioral characteristics differ. So that is one big thing that we've learned is that any program policy that does not celebrate this richness and the nuances of stories is doomed to fail. And so what our students have taught us is that those experiences matter. And for us, when we think about the connection to technology, back to your earlier question, um, and I do want to make a point about AI and predictive models that we know that are using race and demographic information to be able to predict behavior, um, how doomed those models are. And so rather than doing that, we're using our students' aspirations, their attitudinal, as I said, and behavioral characteristics, um, some of the challenges that they face, but really more of the assets that they bring to the table. 
And by using that information, you are able to better predict what students need in order to be successful. So that is one lesson, that our students are diverse, that they are nuanced. And so when we speak to our students and about our students, we don't use the characteristics that society uses to limit their potential and to define them. Um, I know I shared this story with you as well. And one of the ways that this is so palpable for me is that technically I am a low-income student or when I was applying to Dartmouth, I was applying as a low-income student. That wasn't an identity that I ever owned or that my family owned. When you think, talk to my mom and my dad who were such hardworking people, they didn't think of ourselves as poor. We had everything that we needed and we were able to even provide for our extended family. It wasn't easy. So this by no means means that we had um, um, addressed some of the challenges, economic challenges of our community. And I grew up in Mattapan, Massachusetts, again, a community that is designated as low income. But for us, we felt thrilled and lucky and it was, it was challenging, but we were still able to provide for other members of our family who didn't have as much as we did. So we felt like there was an abundance and we were able to share that abundance. So that's just one thing. When we speak to our students, they don't say I'm poor. They don't self-identify as that, right? They understand that there are challenges. That's the other thing that I would say about some of the lessons that we've learned from the students we're honored to serve. So you described the program when I asked you in a way that I assume is the way you talk to a general audience, right, in our field. How do you talk about the work of Beyond 12 to the students you serve or to your parents? It's so funny. So I'm going to laugh a little bit because um, the story is different for my parents. So my grandmother, who was so instrumental in who I am, um, passed away, unfortunately, but she was 105. She passed away two years ago. And I laugh because according to my grandmother, we run a school. So I would tell her and talk to her about everything that I would say. And her pride when she would recount what her granddaughter does is she runs a school for aspiring students. And so I, at some point I was like, That's yes. Great. Yes, that's what we do. We run a yes, school. Do. <laughs> um, so lots of parents, lots of my parents, friends, or my family believe that I run a school. Yeah. But, you know, and it's, it's a version okay. of a school, you know, it, is, it yeah. is kind of, you know, if we were to loosely define school, I certainly believe that that could fall um, into the definition. But there's a bigger vision for that, that we often talk to our students about. We think that it is important for you not just to navigate your own journey, but to start thinking about how you are going to open doors for others who are coming behind you. So we often talk about graduate, take five, take 100 with you across that graduation stage. So how do you figure out the system enough for you to be able to earn your own journey? But how do you help us redesign a higher education system that is more affordable, accessible, equitable and relevant? And what is your role in not just earning your own degree, but again, changing the conditions on your campus to allow other students whose backgrounds and stories are similar to yours to navigate those challenges and to hopefully change this campus experience so that the road won't be as arduous for students who are coming after you. 
I would be so curious if you have any off the top of your head of ideas that your students have come up with about how they make this system better. Yeah, I mean, it is so campus specific, Mm -hmm. right? And context specific. And that is the piece that we keep stressing to our students. And so rather than us coming up with a policy agenda and gathering them as supporters of those agendas, um, we ask the question, what is, what is, what are the conditions on your campus? If you do the power mapping, what does that look like on your campus? And some of the things that we've learned from students or ideas that they've had, um, one of them has been to um, create coalitions, like multi-ethnic coalitions. So to be able to connect uh, La Alianza Latina on their campus with the Black Student Union, with the Native Americans on campus, right? To be able to work in coalition because oftentimes those um, organizations work in silo mm-hmm. and the conditions on your campus aren't such that they allow you to build these multi-ethnic, multicultural coalitions. So students have talked about that. Um, Our students have also been interested in addressing other lines of difference, right? So we have students who have said um, that their campuses weren't set up to allow students who who had disabilities to be able to navigate campus. And so how do you change the campus that way? How do you advocate for more faculty of color? I mean, there have been so many um, ideas and changes um, that our students envision Um, about how to do higher education differently and how to potentially just redesign. We're actually in the fall going to launch a design challenge. And so really seeking some of these ideas from students, selecting a few of those ideas, and then using our coaching platform to be able to provide them with the support that they need. I'm struck, though, that so many of them are coming to things that our field is coming to, right? This idea of multi-ethnic, multi-kind of like coalition building, and that if you stay siloed, you're not as powerful as if you come together. And the idea that, you know, students who have been on the margins in different ways actually need to come together because we're sort of marginalized for a purpose in the existing system. So it's interesting that they come to that naturally um, through their lived experience and through paying attention. Um, to power. So I'm a first generation college student myself. And something you said earlier, um, you know, resonated. I've, I've wondered how we've approached our advocacy and our verbiage around first generation students and what college makes possible, right? This idea that this is your route out of poverty or your route out of or into economic opportunity. I mean, in this country, if you think historically, it was often the case that kind of going from where you came as a as a first generation person in this country to i don't know the the sort of st- stability of maybe the middle class was a two generation experience and the narrative over the last kind of 12 to 15 years has skewed very heavily in the direction of four year college it's the pathway to success and we know that that's not necessarily realistic for many students who may be working to support families. They might be in the process of building social capital um, and an understanding of this country that's their new home. And we are seeing an emerging shift in the field towards career pathways. So seeing multiple options, four-year college, two-year college, certificates, the trades, the military, all as valuable and legitimate options for students. And I'm curious whether you have thoughts about the shift in the narrative, given your own lived experience, and again, the work with the students that you, you serve. 
Absolutely. And what you're describing is, I think, a limitation of the way that we think about education in general. We tend to not think about options, right? And we tend to be binary, right? Either you go to college or you don't go to college. Either you do the trades or you don't. Either tech, you're for technology or against technology. Pro-choice or you want to limit choice, right? And so um, I think that's just a limitation of the national dialogue about education. Our perspective is that you need an array of options for students and that there are different paths to achieving the dreams and the aspirations that our students have. And our position is that let's prepare students for the future of work and let's prepare them in all of the different ways giving them access to all of the skills that they're going to need to be able to navigate the future of work. For some students, it's a four-year degree. For some students, it's a two-year degree. For some students, it may be a trade. For some students, it may be going to work directly and then coming back, you know, once you've been in the workforce. Um, for some, it's continuous learning, right? And so it might be micro-credentials. You take some credentials, you're in work, you come back, you stop, and you come in and out of our education system. I think that lack of imagination is what's led us to have this dialogue that is one or the other, one path or the other. There are multiple paths. But I would also say that one of the things that we have to be careful of is that we don't segregate students by path based on race socioeconomic background, or parents' level of education. So if we are going to offer a rich array of paths, let's ensure that we are making those as high quality as possible so that all students are considering those paths and that we're not offering some paths to students, specific kinds of students, because we failed them. Right. The education system has failed them and we're looking to bail them out, right? A way to bail them out. And so for us, it has to be multiple paths, but they have to be multiple high quality paths, right? That all students want to take advantage of so that my son, right? Or, you know, the son of somebody who may not be first generation, that path is appealing <laughs> to yep. all students, right? But that they are making a decision about their path based on their interests, their skills, and their dreams, not because we have limited their choices um, through our education system. Well, and I'm glad you named that, right? Because I think the equity consideration was part of it because for years when I was in school, you did see it was boys, it was kids of color, it was poorer students who got tracked into vocational, technical, you know, career pathways. And I think the world and the economy are changing. I think there are broader conversations about what it means to have a living wage, regardless of whether you're going into, you know, what we thought, what we have historically thought of as professional versus trades, you know, or um, skilled trades careers. So I think that makes a difference. But I, I do think when I look at the diversity of voices around many of our tables, the folks around the table took a very particular path. And they believe with the best of intentions that that is the best path. And I think even they have trouble sometimes envisioning that their child would not go into a four-year professional program. Um, it's always fascinating to see how 
when people have more than one child, um, so often one of those children like does really well in the traditional and the other one doesn't. And that shifts the conversation. But I wonder how conversations would look different if we had folks who made careers as electricians or in the skilled trades or as artists or as people who did this more kind of consistent learning around the table. I'm just curious, like whether that resonates, if you've seen places where that is being done well, because it certainly seems like it's part of how we shift the broader um, kind of implicit biases we have about what's valuable and has status versus the things that don't, that's so deeply embedded in this country. That resonates so deeply because a lot of times this conversation about paths is only happening with folks who have college degrees or advanced degrees. Like that, that's it. We don't often bring the vo- bring in the voices of those who are living the alternative paths, right? Or the alternate reality. And so, yes, I think being able to elevate those professions, being able to elevate the diversity of those professions, right? Like how um, many different kinds of people with different kinds of paths for instance, are succeeding as electricians, being able to um, help us imagine the richness of that life path, right? Exactly what, what, what it looks like, right? What does it mean to succeed as an electrician? What other skills are you tapping into um, so that you can live this path? And for me, and I said this in the beginning, we believe in a post-secondary credential, not just because of the credential, but because we believe it allows folks to not just secure meaningful employment, but to lead choice-filled lives, right? And so what does a choice-filled life look like for somebody who has taken an alternative path? And you are absolutely right. We don't have those conversations um, with diverse voices. And so therefore it's often difficult. And I'll admit to my own bias, right? It is very hard for me with a Dartmouth undergraduate degree and a Stanford graduate degree to look at black and brown children who look like me and say, no, not my path, but there may be another path for you. So I, that is definitely a bias that I have, but these are conversations we need to have. We need to have those conversations. And I am excited. You asked if I see of places where this is happening. Not yet. I mean, I see small roundtables, but I do believe that we're starting to ask that question. Can we bring in the voices of those who are living the alternative mm-hmm. so that we can have a more full and holistic conversation about what options look like for our children? Uh, I'll tell you, as part of my research for my book, I spent a year and it like annoyed my kids, it annoyed my husband, but I basically asked everyone I met, all right, the, the person at the bank who was helping me open my business account, the person at the restaurant, the guy who came to do our AC repair, like everybody, I was like, uh, so what do you do for a living? Like what, you know, what's your work? What training did you actually need mm-hmm. to do the work that you're doing? And do you live a happy and fulfilled life? And what I took away from that was the disconnect often between what people are doing and the education they had or where they got the training or the skills they needed to do the work they were doing. And it was often not the kind of formal pathway that they took. And I was also struck that year by the number of ways that people described fulfilling and purposeful lives. Like for many of them, it was working to be able to spend time with family or it was working to be able to do the the sort of hobby or the other thing that they wanted to do. And it wasn't necessarily the way that so many of the people I interact with in my daily life think of success, 
right? And, and purpose. And I just, it'd be fascinating if more of us could go around and actually have that conversation with different people that we meet, especially not the people that we tend to have cocktail parties or, or, you know, dinners with. Um, That is so. so true. That is so true. And even like, I mean, that, even the generation before us, right? If I were to ask my parents what they needed to live a fulfilled life, it's very different. You're right. Then the way that we describe the, we would describe it, but what a fascinating exercise. I think I'm going to do that. (laughs) Tell me what you hear. I will. I'm going to just start documenting that. That is so fascinating. And it's funny. People first look at you like it's, you're really weird. And then I sort of explained why I was like, I work in education and I'm just really curious because I feel like I never hear this and it's people really want to talk. So anyway, um, so we have funders, um, who are listening to this podcast and I'm curious, you know, since it's not one particular funder and we always have to be careful about the power dynamics in our field, I'm curious what you wish you could say to them about how they fund, who they fund, what they don't fund that you think they should. Um, yes, I'd love to talk about this. Um, but a couple of suggestions. One is the value of proximity, fund proximity, fund entrepreneurs, who have experience with the communities and with the challenge that they are trying to solve. Oftentimes we value expertise, we value credential as philanthropists more than proximity. And I know that the dialogue is starting to change now, but I believe that the entrepreneurs who have so much exposure, lived experience, and connection to the communities that they are trying to solve are building better solutions. And that's not not often valued, um, I think, by philanthropy. The other one is the importance of giving entrepreneurs the capital that they need to be able to dream. I know that philanthropy tends to be very risk-averse, um, but we're not going to solve these issues and these challenges without R&D capital, without some of the risk capital, without the capital to be able to say, let's just dream. Let's test and learn and test and learn. Um, I have some t- statistics I will not share with you, but like how much companies like Google and Meta and some of the other big tech players spend on R&D. And that's how you're able to get to the solutions. How much did OpenAI spend on R&D before they dropped ChatGPT on us, right? Like it wasn't a $50,000 endeavor, right? It wasn't mm-hmm. a $50,000 yeah. endeavor and then write me a grant report about it, right? right. Like that's right. not the kind of capital that allowed for that kind of innovation and this kind of solution. And so we need more of that capital in the nonprofit space to be able to test and learn if we are going to solve some of these seemingly intractable problems, right? And so think about the amount of investment it would take for a social entrepreneur to be able to unleash a chat GPT-like solution in the space that would actually help us solve poverty, that would Mm -hmm. actually help us impact climate change, that would actually help us make 10 steps forward in, in education, for instance, right? And so I think this concept of writing a 50-page proposal for $50,000 and then a 20-page report about how you spent that money, we are wasting human capital, you know, in this kind of pursuit. And so 
give social entrepreneurs big capital, the capital to dream, and then stand out of their way, right? Because we have the talent to solve these issues, but there is something fundamentally broken about the capital structure for nonprofits. And by the way, there are a group of us who have decided that we're no longer calling ourselves nonprofits, but we're going to call ourselves tax-exempt businesses. Or for impact businesses, right, rather than nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, but that the the task ahead is larger in many ways than some of the business tasks, right? But um, or challenges, I should say, not just the task, the challenges ahead, but the capital structure doesn't support mm-hmm. um, entrepreneurs to be able to test and learn and um, come up with some of these broader solutions. So those are just a few pieces of advice um, that I would give to philanthropists. Well, and I want to pull on just a couple of threads on that, right? You use the term proximate and people use that word in very different ways. But something I heard in what you said is proximate is the lived experience and really understanding the challenge. It's not proximate in the sense of you're going to be an outsider, go in, talk to a lot of people in the community and then develop it. But I think sometimes people think proximate can be the latter, right? That you're just simply listening to community or you're getting their input as opposed to being part of the community. So that's one piece. And the other, I love this idea of talking about tax exempt businesses because you know, with no offense to businesses, I think often they are saying, okay, there's a space in the market and we are going to create something for that space to meet a need. Whereas the kinds of challenges that social entrepreneurs are trying to kind of work on or to solve are complex, intersectional, often beyond the scope of one particular nonprofit or for a uh, tax-exempt business, right? That you're going to require lots of them to work together in new ways. And the capital structure makes that hard as well, right? Because you're almost inevitably competing with someone else for the same pot of of money. And so it really, it, it does seem to require a very different way of thinking about philanthropy that is more about transformational pots of money that give a longer time horizon that allow for emergent complex partnerships and R&D, right, to, to be done. And I think we don't, we don't fairly honor what work um, those of us who are in the social entrepreneur sector are trying to do. It's much more complex than Absolutely. most businesses. Absolutely. And I wish your audience could see me nodding, <laughs> nodding vigorously <laughs> as you were saying that. Yes. Yes, yes to everything you just said. The clarification about proximity, it's lived experience, right? And and a step um, more than proximity. And it's not just geographic proximity. And it is not just going to your end users to help them validate an idea that you've come up with, but it's true co-creation and co-designing, right? Like with voices at the table um, and the power dynamics, right? Like shift that is required for you as a social entrepreneur, and that automatically happens when this is your community and this is your challenge. So yes, thank you for clarifying both and absolutely the clarification on philanthropy and changing the, fundamentally changing the way that we um, do philanthropy. So if you had a suggestion, knowing that we have a sector that's pretty risk averse, what would be some of the ways that they might define impact 
and or what would they be valuing or asking you for feedback on to help them understand that progress was still happening, even if it wasn't in some of the forms and metrics that are currently used? Does that question make sense? It does make sense. And here's the thing about it. We are such a data-driven organization and I am a data nerd. And so for me, like there, there are two parts to that question. So I believe in some of the metrics that we mm-hmm. use, right? In order for me, if I am running an organization that says that our students are going to earn college degrees that allow them to transform their lives, there's no problem. I don't have a problem. And we have mm-hmm. a very robust data collection um, mechanism at Beyond 12 because we're tech-enabled where we are collecting information about student graduation rates. We are collecting data about term-to-term persistence. You know, we are collecting Mm -hmm. data about um, employment outcomes, right? And so those data are absolutely valuable, and I believe that we should continue to collect it. If we're going to make the claim that that's our our work and our vision, um, we should be collecting data that gives us an indication that we are moving the needle. However... There is another part of this, right? How do you measure transformation? How do you measure a choice-filled life? Which is what you and I were talking about, right? And so those aren't as simple to measure. We don't have a lot of great instruments to measure that. And that's where the qualitative data has to come into play as well. And so we can have both the quantitative and the qualitative, Mm -hmm. but we have to make room for how students would describe or learners in general, right? Like would describe um, their changed experiences. And so that I think is the, the, the key that we have to be able to do both and we have to value both. Mm -hmm. And, let the social entrepreneurs talk to you about the measures that they believe signal that they are achieving their vision and their mission. Let's hear it directly from their constituents, because that's just as powerful as the, are students earning degrees? And can I demonstrate, Mm. do I have counterfactuals that are able to, you know, um, demonstrate that we are making moves? So for me, it's, we need both. But let the social entrepreneurs and our communities define what those measures are and let's value them as much as we value the quantitative. Well, and that makes total sense for you now as an established program. But how about in the first couple of years, right, where that R&D money was coming in that enabled you to iterate and maybe try originally some designs that weren't working? So at that stage, so I think of it almost as like phases. So how about in those that first phase, especially for social entrepreneurship, where you may not yet be getting the kinds of numbers, right, on the long-term impacts? What What would folks have measured then or what would they have collected data about then? Yeah. So I think it's simple. It's a learning agenda because you don't know. And so what we're forced to do now in philanthropy is to create these outcomes (laughs) that we don't really believe that we're going to be able to meet, but we have to because that's what funders are asking us for. So rather than trying to collect those data or us making it up um, as we're starting out, I think what you're measuring is what is the learning agenda, right? And so does the social entrepreneur have a very clearly defined sets of, set of questions that they are trying to answer? And you're measuring progress against answering those questions. Did you answer those questions? What did you learn? 
What did you learn about your model? What are you keeping the same? What are you changing? And then what does the next phase look like? And so for me, that measurement in the beginning is learning. What are the hypotheses that you have? Um, We use a framework validation in the wild, right? About like when we have a new hypothesis about something that we're going to test. Um, and, And this is product development. You don't go and build the product, right? Like you run a bunch of lean tests and micro pilots to really figure out, okay, was this the right assumption? What did I get right? What did I get wrong? What are the new questions that are emerging? And so really that's what you should be assessing in the very beginning, Does the social entrepreneur have a very well-defined learning agenda set of questions? Do they have a path, you know, that Mm -hmm. puts them on the way to answering those questions? Have they developed the micropilots and the lean tests, at least the framework to be able to do that? And at the end, what did they learn? Hmm. That's great. It does speak to potentially on on foundation boards, we need more social entrepreneurs, right, to kind of help organizations think differently about these two kind of just ways of thinking about progress. So and just to to end and sort of flip the flip it a little bit, what insights from your own journey would you offer to early stage or aspiring social entrepreneurs in terms of of the work that they want to do and how to engage with the broader sector? Oh, my goodness. Such insight. Such insight. I mean, just based on all of the mistakes that I learned and that I made in the past. I think the first is the importance of just gathering a kitchen cabinet. I think that that advice has come from so many different sectors in so many different ways. But I think of how important my early advisors were on this journey, folks to whom I could turn to ask authentic questions um, and who provided that kind of guidance, um, not just in terms of the direct work, but who were also able to provide guidance around connections and communities, opportunities, who were able to use their own social capital and their own social power to help advance the work. And so early group of advisors um, in from so many different sectors and different walks of life, and we all have them. I think the fields may not value those relationships depending on where they are. But for me, it wasn't a power board who was able to fundraise. It was a board of individuals who believed in me as a social entrepreneur, believed in our mission. Many were entrepreneurs themselves. So they understood firsthand the challenges of trying to launch something off the ground. Um, Some had known me for a long time. Some were just professional contacts. But that early kitchen cabinet of folks that you can go to and say, this is hard. (laughs) This is really hard. This is really lonely. Here's a real problem that I am having because oftentimes you can't have that conversation with your funders or early funders. And so who are the people who are going to be critical thought partners, right? Who are going to tell you the truth, but who are also going to believe in you and the work that you're doing and this idea and who are going to continue to, to provide you with the fuel that you need and the sale that you need to be able to launch. I think the second thing, and this goes back to one of the things that we were talking about, the importance of bringing your constituents on the journey with you. And so not building something for community, but building something with community and creating that feedback loop that you constantly go back to. The idea for our mobile app came from our students. Mm. right? And our early coaches, it came from our students. They were like, you know what? Like, I don't need my coach to remind me of this deadline. This is making our relationship transactional. What Mm. I need my coach for is the inspirational when I feel bad. And so it is okay for you to automate this. The Mm. idea to even do virtual coaching 
13 years ago came from our students. Our students were like, yeah, one student in particular was like, I've had an entire relationship via text. And so we were like, <laughs> okay. She was like, we got together via text. We broke up via text. And we were like, there is something to this virtual connection. <laughs> Even 13 years ago, we were like, we can create a virtual coaching program because this Funny. is how our students are connecting. So the importance of not just listening to, but building with and not mm. for um, in the very early days and continuing to have that feedback cycle and that feedback loop. And then the last thing is to, in addition to your kitchen cabinet, seek out fellow entrepreneurs because that road can be so lonely. But there are other people, I guarantee you, who are going through the same challenges and the same problems. And so try to figure out if you can find your people, right? Like mm -hmm. other social entrepreneurs who are on the journey to make the road less daunting and less lonely. And I, I wonder, especially on those, the first and the last points, would you offer anything additional for social entrepreneurs who may not, for example, have gone to Dartmouth or have been part of Ashoka or Pahara, right? A lot of the networks where, um, where we are able to connect with folks, but maybe folks who are, you know, who don't have the credentials that we said, you know, so many funders and other and investors look for. Any particular advice for them about where to access those or how to access those or how to navigate without? them. Yeah. And I, I think it goes back to the first one, right? We often don't look at our own network, right? Like I guarantee, and the networks may look very different and they not may not be a network that immediately leads you to an Ashoka, right? But there are folks with whom you have come into contact um, who are able to offer just that kind of guidance and that connection. And so for me, it is putting yourself out there and going to those events. It can be very scary going to any of those events that you hear about if you're feeling like you don't have the credentials to be in the room. So the first thing would be, to start believing it and faking it in the believe, you know, faking it in the beginning <laughs> if you don't believe it, but that you yeah. deserve to walk into any of those rooms. And so seek out those rooms, try to do the research and get yourself into those rooms to have those conversations. Reach out to me, right? If you feel like I can be helpful in any way. And I think other social entrepreneurs whose backgrounds and stories are similar to yours, because I guarantee it that we are trying to do our best to lift as we climb um, our own ladders of success. So we are open to having those conversations, but it starts with believing and putting your idea out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I'm often struck, the most powerful thing I think is somebody who has an idea they believe in, right? And almost by definition, social entrepreneurs are that. And so I think you've already got a leg up um, in many of those conversations. Alex, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you for the work that you do and look forward to our next connection. Thank you so much for having me today. And thank you for the work that you do. I think it's so important to be able to elevate um, the voices of social entrepreneurs and folks who are working on the ground. So I appreciate the opportunity to have this platform and for you to share your power, you know, and your capital with those of us who are doing the work. Thanks for listening. The Future Smart Podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. 
You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of SMART, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com. Ulca.